welcome to Misunderstood, a podcast dedicated to better understanding MS and learning to live well with MS. I'm your host, Katie Sloan. Our usual reminders as we begin. First, I am not an expert. I'm just a person like you living with MS and trying to make the best of it. Misunderstood is based on my personal experience, what I've learned from my doctors, other care providers, and my own solutions-oriented research and pattern-finding obsession. While the majority of the information I share has been vetted by doctors, I am not a doctor. My intention is that you use the information shared here as a springboard for discussion between you and your doctor regarding your future care options. And lastly, MS impacts each of us uniquely. I hope to shine a light on a wide range of approaches and strategies for living better with MS. But what you choose to do with that information is always your choice, and what works for one may not work for all. In our previous episode, we talked about ractivism or random acts of kindness, and how we can use acts of kindness to help others and ourselves. I hope in recent weeks you've been able to find ways to spread kindness in your circles and felt the power of kindness. As promised, I've been busy organizing and donating my precious mother-in-law's personal possessions to a variety of charities where they will be put to good use and help people in need. I've also done the little things, like making a conscious effort to consistently let people into my lane while driving. I reached out to two friends going through a really hard time just to offer space and solidarity. I opened my heart to forgiveness with someone who betrayed my trust. And I helped a handful of people decide to participate in the upcoming True Medicine MS cohort that launched last weekend, which I know will bring each of them closer to better health as people living with MS. I plan to keep the ractivism going all month as a tribute to Kathy, and I hope you have already or will consider joining me. Thank you. Today, we're going to look at the root cause of autoimmunity so that we can all better understand what led each of us to our MS diagnosis, learn about the prodromal stage of MS and why it's important, and even more importantly, illuminate ways to reverse course to get ourselves to a place of healing and recovery. Better understanding my personal journey to MS has helped reveal my path to living well with MS. For today's gratitude, I want to extend my thanks to everyone who has been extra supportive this past month as we grieve and learn to live day to day without my dear mother-in-law, Kathy. First, thank you to you. I typically release episodes every other week, or at least two and sometimes three episodes per month. Sometimes life doesn't allow even that cadence. Sometimes it's something MS-related, and sometimes, like now, it's the unexpected loss of a loved one that is requiring much travel, attention, and energy elsewhere. What means so much is that you're still listening and that you extend the grace I need as a person living with MS who is trying to put some good into the world through this podcast, who sometimes fails miserably in sticking with my desired schedule. So thank you very much for your understanding and continued support. 
I'd also like to thank everyone who has reached out to check on us and offer their words of condolences, support, comfort, and shared treasured memories of their own about Kathy. These texts and voicemails mean so much to us. And thank you also for the flowers, the gift baskets, and the cards. These generous acts of kindness and care have meant so much to us both as we continue to navigate this big change in our lives. While losing Kathy is something that will likely take years to even begin to adjust to, I am grateful for this opportunity of clarity and reflection when it comes to my circles of community. I believe it's really important who shows up in our lives when we need it most. In fact, join me for a moment in thinking about our MS diagnoses. You probably remember yours as clearly as I remember mine, and you likely remember who was really there to lean on, who offered the support you needed, and who may have been absent or chose not to engage in ways you desired. These milestone events in life serve a very important secondary purpose. They shine a light on the people who truly care for us, and they similarly illuminate people for whom we may want to consider spending less time or energy on in the future. Healthy relationships are symbiotic and mutualistic where both parties flourish as a result of the relationship. I'm very grateful that my inner three circles of community have really pulled through for us in the face of this untimely tragedy. The reflection, evaluation, and innermost circles rehaul that I've done over the past few years has most definitely paid off, and I sincerely thank you for your support. Last week, I attended a webinar offered by Dr. Susan called Why Me? MS and Autoimmunity Explained. Today, I want to share the gist of that webinar, as well as additional related research I've been doing on what's called the padromal stages of MS. And I also want to throw in some personal color commentary and some self-reflection opportunities for each of us as we reflect upon our own experiences with developing autoimmunity and potential avenues for healing. Even if you also attended this webinar, as I know some flock members did, I hope you'll still listen today, because as we traverse through making sense of how we each arrived at MS, I'll pose some important questions for each of us to consider that will hopefully illuminate a path forward to a place of better health for each of us. Dr. Susan started off by sharing an informative overview of our immune system and how it works as the protector of our bodies. It's nothing short of amazing. Our immune system is a delicate and intricate system that involves cells, antibodies, and chemical messengers. From a very young age, our exposure to a wide variety of germs helps our immune system learn what is good for us and what it needs to protect us from. Makes sense, right? Through exposure, our immune system learns what is foreign and each of us has our own unique immune system labeling and alarm systems, which can change over time. I want to add here that autoimmunity is not something that develops overnight. So understanding what is called the prodromal stage of MS or any autoimmune condition is really important. The good news is that supporting padromal stage MS research is a primary goal in this year's MS Society's strategic plan, so rest assured that a good amount of funding is currently going into this research. But first, what in the world is the padromal stage? 
The padromal stage is defined as a distinct period of time where early symptoms of disease are developing, but before characteristic symptoms appear and an actual diagnosis can be made. By better understanding what symptoms might show up early, we'll be more likely to intervene and treat prior to the development of full-blown autoimmune diseases. In an article published in January of this year in Frontiers of Neurology, they shared current efforts to better understand MS symptom onset. Early evidence shows an existence of a clinically symptomatic prodromal phase that could span 10 years or more. Researchers now understand that better understanding the prodromal stage of MS would allow for more successful prevention efforts, earlier recognition and treatment, as well as information that could lead to an improvement in our overall long-term disease prognosis. This knowledge will also allow for more accurate identification of higher-risk individuals and opportunities for earlier and earlier intervention. And that's really important, as people are getting diagnosed now earlier and earlier with autoimmunity and MS. In a February of this year Healthline article, they reported that somewhere from 3 to 10% of people living with MS receive their diagnosis before 16 years of age, with less than 1% receiving their diagnosis before age 10. While the trends are moving younger over time, MS is still most commonly diagnosed between the ages of 20 and 40, and remains about three times more common in women than men. Let's pop back to dive a little deeper into the prodromal stage research, and as we do, be thinking about which symptoms were amongst the earliest that you experienced prior to your MS diagnosis. I firmly believe through my work with Dr. Susan and in my own personal experience that the ability to decode our own pathway to MS can likewise yield a pathway forward to a stage of healing. Some of the prodromal symptoms researchers are currently looking at for MS are cognitive deficits, psychiatric morbidity, such as clinical depression, anxiety, and bipolar disorder fatigue, sleep disorders, pain, fibromyalgia, bowel and bladder issues, and dermatological issues. In one study of young men, lower cognitive scores emerged two years prior to MS symptoms onset. In another study, depression and other mood disorders were present five to ten years prior to the first recorded MS or demyelinating diagnostically visible evidence. Current evidence also showed that pain is more evident in older adults in the prodromal stage, whereas anemia is more pronounced in men five years prior to MS activity. Researchers believe this is related to the fact that red blood cells are active participants in the body's immune response, and the inflammatory processes of MS could lead to a reduction of circulation of red blood cells, leading to anemia. 
Some interesting early emerging data shows that early inflammation markers are lower in cases that end in a primary progressive diagnosis, leading researchers to believe that PPMS has a much longer prodromal phase with lower cognitive scores measurable up to 20 years prior to PPMS symptom onset, compared with about two years for relapsing remitting or RRMS. It will be interesting to follow this research over time, and hopefully we'll learn more about the MS prodromal stage biomarkers so that early interventions can prevent or drastically improve our long-term MS outcomes. Current studies on CSF, or cerebral spinal fluid, oligoclonal bands, and specific elevated biomarkers were associated with earlier developments of CIS, or clinically isolated syndrome, activity. They are also studying potential gut microbiome biomarkers and abnormalities in visual evoked responses and optical coherence tomography as early indicators of abnormalities in our visual pathways. In this prodromal stage, our autoimmunity is evolving, and as it becomes more and more dysregulated, that's when our immune system begins to lose its ability to differentiate between our own tissues and dangerous invaders. We may also at this time develop food intolerances to foods we've never reacted poorly to before. In retrospect, I wonder now if this is why I suddenly developed an embarrassing intestinal reaction to bagels in my mid-30s. Let's now look at risk factors for autoimmunity. And as we do, be thinking about which risk factors pertain to you. To do this, we'll talk through what Dr. Susan calls the autoimmune triad, where there are three main aspects to consider. The first is genetic predisposition. While we won't go into the names of specific genetic markers, there are a handful of them that are linked to autoimmunity. We can first look back into our family histories to find evidence of autoimmunity in various forms, like rheumatoid arthritis, type 1 diabetes, psoriasis, lupus, and many, many more. In fact, did you know that there are currently over 80 known autoimmune conditions that impact more than 24 million people in the United States alone? In addition to taking a good look at our family tree, it's important to note that risk levels for autoimmunity are significantly higher for females post-puberty, and there are also interesting patterns regarding race, tobacco smoke exposure, low levels of natural sunlight resulting in inadequate vitamin D nutrition, and obesity in childhood and adolescence. These higher risk groups can offer us a window into our own autoimmune experience. While I can't change that I'm a woman past puberty or change my race, I can choose to limit my tobacco smoke exposure, ensure I get enough natural sunlight and vitamin D supplementation to maintain optimal levels, and work to keep my weight as an adult in check. But even if we have the genetic predisposition for autoimmunity and fall into the higher risk categories I just mentioned, that doesn't at all mean that we, or we all, will end up with an autoimmune condition. Well, why not? Well, simply put, the genetics alone aren't enough to trigger an autoimmune response. And this, my friends, is where gut health comes into play. 
The second aspect of the autoimmunity triad or the second step that has to happen for us or anyone to develop autoimmunity is membrane permeability or leaky gut. This happens when gaps form in the lining of our digestive tract, which allow foreign bodies to seep into our bloodstream and from there all around our bodies in places that are usually protected. So leaky gut increases our vulnerability to a wide variety of viruses and bacteria, some of which can take years to manifest symptoms significant enough to be noticed. And this is where we might start to notice some common prodromal symptoms and why exposure to viruses and bacteria can be so damaging to us, especially if we've already developed autoimmunity. Hence, the biggest reason I'm still trying so hard to avoid COVID-19. The most common clinical or behavioral prodromal stage symptoms for MS are, and take note which impacted you first, fatigue, pain, headaches, migraines, depression, anxiety, higher rates of infections, more visits to the doctor, or difficulties getting pregnant. If we can catch these early symptoms, we can intervene with reversing strategies, the most common being to quit smoking, up our physical activity, maintain a healthy weight, and improve our vitamin D nutrition. In doing so, our future MS brothers and sisters might one day be able to actually avoid making it to the diagnosis and full-on autoimmune condition phase. Before we move on, let's take a moment to reflect. Which of these early symptoms were a part of your MS story? Do they help you fill in the blanks in your journey? Are they still part of your current MS story? If so, what is that making you want to work towards better health in those areas? I'll mention here that I welcome outreach if anyone would find it helpful to have a conversation with someone else about their unique MS autoimmunity manifestation and strategize together how to move to a place of better health. As I said in January, I've set aside time to hold about six of these conversations each month, and I've been enjoying them very much. So if having someone to talk with about your MS seems like something you'd like to do, send me an email and we'll schedule a session together via Zoom. So we have genetic predisposition and gut permeability, but we still don't have MS? The third aspect of autoimmunity is triggers. We can think of these as the final activators of autoimmunity, like a switch or the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. As we go through this list, again, let's each think about which of these triggers we believe may have played a role in our own unique autoimmune activation. Now, you may say, well, what does it matter how I got here? Well, for me, being able to identify what it was that likely caused the activation also helped me figure out ways back to wellness. I'll share more about this as we go, and I encourage you to think about your own autoimmune experience too. The first trigger that is related to autoimmunity is stress and trauma. Lots of things put stress on our body systems. This can be physical stress or trauma, like a car or boating accident, or an emotional stress or trauma. 
and it can be one incident or prolonged exposure. We all react differently to trauma. Longtime listeners know about the significant risk increases for autoimmune conditions and a wide array of other serious health conditions in adults who experienced a number of adverse childhood experiences, or ACEs, before the age of 18. If you're curious to assess your own exposure to early adversity and learn how these scores can correlate to a wide variety of ailments and illnesses in adulthood, including autoimmunity, check out episode 11, The Past Informs the Future, ACEs and Resiliency. There, we look thoroughly at the ACEs assessment and interesting research data related to different scores. Since I knew my ACEs score meant I had a higher disposition for autoimmunity and had, in fact, by this time already been diagnosed with MS, I started to more deeply explore my related stressors. Two neuropsych evaluations over the course of several years, combined with various therapies and wearing a SPIRE biofeedback device, helped me become more aware of my unique stress triggers. Once aware, I could only then make changes in my life to lessen or remove these stressors. In my case, it meant moving to a new geographic region and seeking a slower pace and more simplistic life. It also meant taking a long, hard look at some of my relationships that weren't terribly healthy and instilling healthier boundaries. It meant looking at how I managed my time and how I spent too much of my life force energy focused outwardly on others, rather than directing a healthy amount of care towards maintaining my own wellness. It also meant doing some inner work and deciding who was healthy for me to be in co-creation with in work spaces. It also meant actively planning for rest and rejuvenation activities and actually scheduling them into my calendar first and sticking to them. It meant engaging in trauma-releasing therapies like EFT. See episode 32, Tap Into Your Greatness with Claire Hayes, if you feel you are carrying any old trauma with you that you're ready to release. It meant engaging with an anxiety coach to learn about ways to write healthier thought patterns in my brain to better manage stressors. Stay tuned. Chris will be featured in an episode very soon. And lastly, it meant having serious brainstorming conversations with my partner about how to make our new home a stress-free zone. All of these changes have drastically lowered my stress so that when something happens in my life that is stressful, which is inevitable, my central nervous system can handle it without going into hyperdrive and spiraling out of inflammatory control. The second trigger for autoimmunity is poor nutrition. Let's be real. In our culture of busy and convenience, our food has changed drastically over time. When I truly learned to read labels, it was shocking. We naively think that because a product has made it to the shelf that it is relatively safe, but this is most definitely not the case. And many of the attempts to make foods lower in calorie or appear healthier in other ways have actually made them even worse for us with all of the man-made sugars, for example, that disrupt the delicate functionality of many of our critical body systems. For optimal MS nutrition research and advice from Dr. Susan, check out episode 16, Food is Medicine, Nutrition Tips for MS. After working with Dr. Susan to clean up my own diet, 
I eat very few foods that come in packages and rely on a whole foods, mostly plant-based diet. I don't eat out very often. I also don't eat artificial sugars, fillers, or binders, as I find those elicit an inflammatory response. A necessary part of cleaning up my diet was to do an elimination diet to identify and treat my unique food sensitivities. I know, I know, you've heard about this before, but when you've looked into it, it just looks too involved and way too difficult. But here's the thing. I thought that too at first. The maximum I thought would be doable for me was a truncated version for about three weeks. And guess what? For me, that was enough. I ate a limited diet of low-trigger foods for about two weeks and then slowly started introducing the higher-trigger foods to see what caused a reaction. While I've shared my detailed results before, I'll share just a few aspects of them briefly here to illustrate a point. Just because we hear a lot about gluten and dairy, it doesn't mean all of us are sensitive to them. It also doesn't mean that if we are sensitive to gluten and dairy, that we'll be sensitive to all gluten and dairy. This is why the best diet for MS is unique for each of us. Sure, we can pull from a lot of the advertised best for MS diets to get an idea of where to start, but to truly land on a food plan that is best for us, the elimination diet is the gold standard. I'll also briefly mention that a full panel allergy testing is not a substitute for the elimination diet. My results all came back negative. The only way I could truly identify my own unique triggers was through the elimination diet. Because from a distance, the elimination diet seems daunting, many of us continue to suffer and further our progression when we could safely identify our own unique food triggers in a matter of just a few short weeks. I actually found the elimination diet experience fascinating. I also lost cravings for salt and sugar. I learned that for me, I'm reactive to certain colors of some foods, like red and green bell peppers, whereas I experienced no reaction at all with yellow or orange bell peppers. I also learned I can eat high quality non-GMO gluten with no problem, or that I'm fine with plain Greek yogurt, but not milk. I can handle most hard cheeses, but no soft cheese. When I eat ice cream, my body prefers sheep's milk ice cream. Learning I had sensitivity to flax seed was also important since that's typically a very healthy food for most people. By learning my unique food triggers, I'm now able to avoid inflammatory responses from foods. I've noticed this most significantly with my clockwork regularity and lack of digestive distress. And also, I haven't experienced the scary tingling on the right side of my face that I used to experience after eating some foods. Knowing that my body is processing food well and that I'm fueling my body with high-grade Katie fuel that is right for me helps me stick to my nutritional plan. And remember, as Dr. Susan says, 80% adherence to any plan, whether it be a food plan, a sleep plan, or an exercise plan, is enough to reap the benefits. I'll also mention here that two other related triggers for autoimmunity are imbalances in the microbiome and mitochondrial dysfunction. Ensuring I'm eating the right foods to maximize my mitochondrial health, woohoo for phytonutrients, eat the rainbow, 
and to keep my gut full of all the good bugs, thanks prebiotic and probiotic foods, helps my digestive system remain happy and functional. Lack of quality sleep is another potential trigger for autoimmunity. This was a big one for me. I was used to working 80-hour weeks. I go out after work most nights and stay up late, so I felt I had a life outside of working hours. I'd get maybe four or five hours of sleep, and I'd do it all over again. While I knew this wasn't terribly healthy, I didn't realize just how big of a destructive impact it was having on my body, especially cumulatively over time. If you're like I was, burning the candle at both ends and thinking it's impossible to consider going to bed at 10 o'clock, check out episode 17, Maximizing Restorative Sleep for Healing. In that episode, you'll learn all about sleep hygiene and how to slowly shift to a healthier schedule. If you asked me if going to bed at 10 was possible several years ago, I would have honestly laughed and wholeheartedly said, no way. But now we are all so regimented in our family that when it gets close to 10 p.m., even our dog starts to let us know it's time. Intentional incremental adjustments and implementation of some of Dr. Susan's sleep readiness advice was all it took to build a healthier sleep routine for our family. A big part of achieving better sleep for me also had to do with exercise. I often thought that since I was working around the clock and registering over 10,000 steps on my pedometer each day, that I was doing enough. But upping my exercise and movement was necessary to achieve deep sleep, which is actually quite common for most of us. You can learn more about exercise and movement in episode 21, The Body Achieves What the Mind Believes, Exploring Exercise and Movement Options for MS. It's no wonder exercise can help us sleep better. It helps support so many of our important body systems. It reduces inflammation, increases antioxidants, supports healthy gut microbiome, and our mitochondria energy producers, and reduces neurodegenerative processes. The deep sleep we can obtain when we exercise enough helps bring regulation back to the immune system. Another trigger for autoimmunity is man-made toxins, many of which are endocrine and immune disruptors. You can find a toxin exposure questionnaire online. I'll also post one on our Patreon page for your convenience. It's a fascinating tool that illuminated many avenues of healing for me early on. For instance, as a kid, my parents loved to use methylate and mercurochrome. These were mercury-containing substances once widely used as germ killers to sanitize topical wounds. As a child, I also developed a significant sensitivity to chlorine bleach from being on a swim team for many years. This often triggered asthma, but only when near the pool. I also learned using EWG.org's tap water database that the water I was drinking was way out of safety compliance, even though the area I lived in was touting their high quality water. The toxin exposure questionnaire and paying more attention to how my body felt resulted in my retirement from lapidary, which was a hobby I dearly loved that entailed cutting and grinding rocks I had collected on my travels. As I started to pay more attention to my exposures, however, I noticed that I didn't feel well after being at the lapidary lab. 
My lungs felt coated in particulates, and my skin on my hands was cracking. These symptoms were messages from my body that this hobby was not a good one for me anymore. Even though I loved it, I've gratefully found safer hobbies to fill that void. I highly recommend taking a look at a toxin exposure questionnaire and seeing what your personal opportunities are for healing in this area. You can learn more about additional ways to minimize your exposure to toxins in episode 28, Toxins Building Awareness and Taking Actions Towards Living a Cleaner Life. Toxins are also important because many toxins disrupt our hormones, and hormonal imbalances are yet another trigger of autoimmunity. In looking closely at each of these autoimmunity triggers, we can each find clues to our own MS stories. When we're able to find the stepping stones that got us to a place of autoimmunity and living with MS, The good news is that we can take steps backwards on those same steps to reverse the levels of damage we've incurred. In fact, in doing so, we can bring regulation back to our immune system, lower our overall inflammation, restore our gut health, and repair leaky gut to support a healthier microbiome bring better balance to our hormones, improve our mitochondrial energy functionality, enhance our body's ability to detox, and overall support the health of our central nervous system. For me, over time, this approach has led to tremendous healing. And every once in a while, I experience a stark reminder of how far I've come with the guidance of Dr. Susan and other experts. This past week, for instance, Eric and I were talking about just this. When cleaning at Kathy's place, I was physically able to do significantly more than I could do just a few years ago. I could get up off the floor unassisted and many times each day. I could pop up into the full-size truck bed. I had more stamina and didn't need to rest as frequently. I could also carry boxes heavier than I've been able to safely carry in quite some time. I won't say I'm not exhausted from all the work, but what I will say is that what I can do now is notably different than just a few years ago, and for that I am incredibly grateful. And while I've been very, very, very sad, I haven't let stress or depression get the best of me, and for that I'm proud. Dr. Susan has said that we can experience 90 to 95% success through these simple lifestyle interventions. I sincerely hope you'll take some time to think deeply about your own path to MS and what that may mean about your path forward. Some of you might be thinking this isn't of interest, at least not now, and that's also okay. As an experienced teacher coach well-versed in change management, I know that nobody changes until they want to change. For me, my first MS challenge of transverse myelitis, which led to my diagnosis, while terrifying, wasn't enough to really get me motivated to change. And at that point, I hadn't met Dr. Susan and learned that healing is possible, as my diagnosing neurologist's approach was, take this DMT and we'll hope for the best. But 10 months later, when I experienced a severe case of optic neuritis that eventually led to my disability retirement and permanent vision damage, that was enough to jolt me into action. 
Learning about Dr. Susan's eight-week program at Stanford changed everything for me. And I'm so grateful she's expanded opportunities for others living with MS to learn from her beyond access through Stanford. If you haven't already looked into her program, check it out. She offers lots of freebies at www.truemedicinems.com. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Even though this program is currently only for people with MS, and many of the specific data points shared are MS-specific, Dr. Susan's strategies, per se, are not limited to MS, but to autoimmunity and general building blocks of enduring good health. So if you've been on the fence about her program, know that the strategies you'll learn will not only help you and others in your life with MS or other autoimmune conditions, but also help teach others, especially kids, how to build routines to support lifelong health early so we all can live well. I hope that after listening to this episode, we all, one, understand that three things must happen to develop autoimmunity, genetic disposition, gut permeability, and an environmental trigger. Two, that we each spend some time reflecting on our own pathway to MS, our genetics, our gut permeability, our prodromal stage experiences, our environmental triggers, and three, that we use this personal knowledge to develop our own blueprint for healing, knowing that there are trusted ways to make living well with MS possible. Our next Misunderstood Flock meeting will be April 2nd. At the Flock meeting, we'll discuss this episode and other episodes released this month and spend some time together celebrating recent wins and supporting one another with current hardships. If you're not yet a Flock member but would like to be, please join us. We are all people living with MS that meet via Zoom the first Saturday of each month to support each other and continue our learning on all the episode topics. Even though there are a lot of Flock members, only about 6 to 10 people regularly attend each month, so we're a nice small group that welcomes new members eagerly and with much warmth. You can learn more and join us by visiting patreon.com slash msflock. As always, I encourage all listeners to reach out with MS-related questions, comments, future podcast topics, or guest ideas via email to mymsflock at gmail.com. And lastly, remember, as we travel through life with MS, we're certain to hit some turbulence. We'll get through it, especially if we're flying together, supporting one another, and honking our encouragement. Thank you for listening, and until next time, be well.